Welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. I'm Mona, and I was married for 30 years and in that relationship for 32, and we didn't find out we were a neurodiverse couple until our 29th year of marriage. And I've been divorced almost five years, and together we have an amazing adult daughter who is doing fantastic and thriving. And for this episode, I am so happy to be joined again by my guest co-host, Dr. Bronwyn Wilson. So welcome, Bron, and I'm sure folks would love to hear your introduction. Well, thank you, Mona. It's great to be here. I'm Bron, and I've been married for 25 years. My husband was diagnosed 16 years ago at Tony Atwood's clinic in Brisbane, soon after I discovered that many of my family were also on the spectrum. That led me to want to know more about autism. So I left teaching and went into research where I investigated the difficulties of communication in neurodiverse relationships from an inside perspective. I interviewed and surveyed 400 people in neurodiverse relationships from all around the world and made some very interesting discoveries, which I'm now sharing with everyone in my books and in these podcasts too. I'm in the process of writing my second book with a third book planned after that. In our talk today, I'll be sharing some of the discoveries from my first book. Awesome. And Braun's first book, which I, I have read from cover to cover, is Have They Gone Nuts? The Survival Guide to Social Interaction in Neurodiverse Autistic Neurotypical Relationships. And you can get it on Braun's website or on Amazon, and I will put that in the show notes. So today we are going to be addressing maybe one of the most critical issues in any relationship, but yes. it has, yeah, it has special um meaning and also special challenges in neurodiverse relationships and that's communication differences. So, you know, I, I always like to share a personal story and um, I think that one of the things that I've talked about maybe a few times on the podcast that I think is helpful for folks maybe to hear is that Oftentimes, when I was communicating to my ex-husband, I was using so much emotion. Um, I might be screaming. I might be crying. And I never just talked about one issue. If, if I had his attention, I would bring up multiple issues. And it was almost like I was storing them, you know. And if he was there and, and not going anywhere, I just kept flooding him. And what I realized is I could talk to my friends that way. I could talk to other family members that way. And we could have a dialogue, even if the dialogue was screaming and emotional. But oftentimes when I did that in my marriage, my ex-husband literally shut down. And I know now that that was what was going on. And, um, you know, I had no compassion. I really didn't. Um, I was judgmental. I was angry. I was creating more conflict, but I didn't know we were a neurodiverse couple. So I share that because I wish I had had the insight back then, but I didn't. And now when I work with either the neurotypical partners or couples, 
I share my own personal stories because I know that they are having their own challenges in communication because of the differences. So Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear what you want to share with our listeners, you know, based on your research and your own personal experience. Okay, well, people on the autism spectrum experience difficulties with both receptive and expressive communication. Receptive communication is the process of receiving and understanding a message from another person and includes making sense of others' uh, spoken language, their body language, facial, facial expressions and tone of voice. An expressive communication is a message given to another person through using language and nonverbal behaviours to make yourself understood. So having both um, difficulties with both receptive and expressive communication leads to the difficulties with reciprocity that people on the spectrum are known to have. These problems with reciprocity range from an atypical social approach a failure of the normal back and forth conversation to reduced sharing of interests, emotions or effect and failure to initiate or respond to social interactions. However, while the core problem for people on the autism spectrum is difficulty with interpersonal communication, they often process proficient I'm getting my P's. Your P's. Proficient. <laughs> levels of language that operates alongside a failure to process others' language. So that's the receptive language problems. Mm-hmm. And studies have confirmed that the more sophisticated the person's language is, the, pra- the greater the problem with miscommunication may be since they frequently give a false impression of their comprehension and that can lead to much misunderstanding, confusion, stress on both sides of an interaction. So that's that's one of the main difficulties is this um, receptive language problems leading to um, reciprocity difficulties which causes major problems yeah. in um, our interaction. The back and forth just does not happen. And you know, on the other hand, people who are, neu- who are neurotypical don't have those same problems with receptive and expressive communication. And because as neurotypicals, we tend to experience a sense of well-being, enhanced functioning when our need to belong is fulfilled by frequent, productive and deep, very deep social encounters, they, uh, well, we expect lots of opportunities to communicate, connect, express love, give and receive emotional support through reciprocity, especially in our relationships. So discussing issues, finding solutions to problems and dealing with conflicts through reciprocity are essential factors to healthy relating for NT people. Mm-hmm. This difference in communication abilities can negatively impact on the conditions required to build a healthy relationship 
such as mutual disclosure of thoughts and feelings and reciprocal responsiveness based on an understanding of another's needs. So that's that's a major issue going on in between people on the spectrum and people who are not on the spectrum. Yeah, and thank you so much for that from your research and um, the work you did with so many, with hundreds, 400 couples and individuals. And I think, um, you know, I always, I always try to share that, you know, some of our episodes are more applicable to the neurotypical partner at, or non-autistic partner, and some are more applicable to the autistic partner. And I know what you said is true for a lot of folks. They feel this deeply. It's a constant conflict. They start questioning the non-autistic neurotypical partner starts questioning, you know, what changed in this relationship? Uh, Maybe my partner wasn't this way when we were first dating. And we've talked about this before about masking or scripts Mm -hmm. being used. And so I've heard people say things like, you know, I feel that I was misled or they were somebody they weren't. And I've also, you know, I also want to share this because I saw this in my own marriage. Um, My ex did not have a lot of friends when we were, you know, married and we were together for 32 years. And then I remember there was a, um, a man that he met who, who had come to our house and I, I, he was probably like 20 years younger than my ex-husband. And I swear, Bron, he was a mini version of my ex-husband. Not in looks, (laughs) not in looks, but his mannerisms and the way he talked, right? Mm -hmm. And so I told my ex-husband, you know, why don't you, you know, go out with him, be friends, whatever. You have the same interests in, in, you have the same interests, right? And my, my ex-husband fought it at first, but then um, they literally became best friends, best, best friends. And what I realized is they were both on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And I don't think at the time, neither one of them knew it. Right. And what they could do. And this is so wonderful is have this amazing connection through communicating about their deep, deep and special interests. And literally, you know, they had amazing, amazing banks of knowledge about mm. the things that they were most passionate about and I would listen to them talk and the passion in their conversation, I actually was envious of, you know, because that those were the kind of conversations my ex and I had in the beginning of our relationship, in the beginning of our marriage. We often would go to movies together. We loved the theater. We loved concerts. We loved, you know, there were certain cultural and art type things we enjoyed going to together. And that's where we bonded. And, but over time, those things didn't happen as often, especially after we had kids. So what I want to point out, I guess, is that I know that autistic individuals will say they have a tremendous um, link and way of communicating with other autistic and neurodivergent folks. And I think that's the challenge because, Mm. because two autistic, and not that the, that two autistic people have tremendous connection, 
but that there's very different ways of communicating for each person. And I've said this on the podcast, and I think it's um, important to repeat this again. I remember during our separation, my ex saying to me, I no longer want to talk to people who don't have the same interests as me. I Mm. don't want to talk to you about the things you (laughs) want to talk about. And so I think before we move on to the next topic, I just want to say if you're in a relationship and it's a mixed neurotype relationship, it's a give and take. So if you want to talk about your special interests or your hobbies or your work or whatever is near and dear to you and you're the autistic partner, fantastic. Take time to, you know, sit with your partner, go for a drive, go for a walk, whatever, go out to dinner. But also your partner who's neurotypical or non-autistic has to have time to be able to talk about the things that are important to them. And there has to be reciprocity on both sides. So even though I may not have been interested in the things my ex was interested in, I loved to hear him talking about them, right? Throughout our marriage. And, and there was reciprocity and I wanted the same thing from him. And oftentimes, especially in probably the last 10 years of our marriage, that was not happening. So Mm -hmm. those are, those are my thoughts. Anything else that you want to share? Because, you know, we have listeners of all neurotypes. And so I want to make sure to, to kind of put that out there. Yes. I had a, a, um, experience where, um, my husband was talking with another man that, that, um, we knew, um, through friends and they both had the same interest in, um, um, military type, um, sort of things that my husband's very interested in, all the war um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. statistics and all that sort of thing. And this friend, um, he was in the Navy. Mm. And so it was amazing to listen to them talking. I just stood beside them. I didn't interact in the conversation at all. But just to listen to them, it was like they had something to say and so one person would say it. And then the other person would say something, but not to each other like neurotypical people do in responding to the thing that they said. It was like, I have this to say, now I have this to say. And it was like a parallel conversation about the same thing, but not actually going that to and fro backwards and forwards where what I say leads to something that somebody else says, which leads back to something that I say, that reciprocal kind of conversation, the way that they were doing it was like just putting pockets of um, information out there. I say this and then they say something else. The other person says something else. And it was related but not connected and it was quite amazing to listen to it. It it worked. It worked mm-hmm. for them. Mm-hmm. It would not work in a relationship that way because you need to have that connection going on in a relationship. But I thought it was very amazing. I've never forgotten that, how it actually worked for them. Yeah. Sounds similar to what I observed. And um, I think that 
if you want to be, thank you for sharing that. I think if you want to be in a relationship with somebody who's not the same neurotype as you, and of course it's everybody's choice, it's really important to understand what your partner needs when it comes to communication. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've talked about some strategies on different episodes of the podcast. And I think a few of the things that I share with the neurodiverse couples who come to my support group is that you can literally schedule like a, a time to connect. It could be every day for five minutes or 15 minutes. It could be once a week for a half hour or an hour, whatever works for you. But there has to be an opportunity for both partners to get their communication needs met. And mm-hmm. there, are, there are a lot of different strategies. So, so let's talk about um, how a couple can talk things through to create a win-win when it comes to communication. What did you find you know, in your research was maybe helpful with some of the couples that were Maybe not getting it perfect, but getting it right more than wrong. Well, what I found in my research was in addition to difficulties with reciprocity, people on the spectrum also have difficulty with pragmatic language. And that's the use of appropriate communication in social situations by knowing what to say, how to say it and when to say it. So that means that they can have difficulties with expressing their needs and wants. And when misunderstanding others or others misunderstanding them, they often do not seek um, clarification or offer clarification. So that part is missing. And in my studies, for those on the spectrum, these types of language difficulties combined with difficulties with expressing emotional language and difficulties with the giving and receiving of of affection were the main triggers to the avoidance of or disengagement from interaction with their neurotypical partners and family members. However, as you were talking about, that often creates a problem for the neurotypical people in the relationship And in my studies, I found that the aim of most neurotypical participants was to try and find a resolution when conflict occurred. But participants with autism did not have the same aim. They wanted problems to just be dropped and to move on from them. But the problem with that approach is that it only often leads to unresolvable differences basically a problem-solving divide between neurotypical and autistic people. And if a problem remains unsolved, it often prevails and it comes back around and around and again. And that, um, the only way to terminate a problem is to find a resolution for it, because otherwise it'll just sit there and keep coming back. And I would like people on the spectrum to hear this, Ignoring a problem doesn't make it go away. Amen. It actually does the opposite. Not dealing with problems only makes them remain and they grow bigger and bigger. And there is clear evidence, and Gottman and Gottman have done a lot of research in this area, that the most satisfied people in close relationships are those who do not avoid communication about important relational topics or conflicts 
and instead they develop a sense of working together through their difficulties. However, the difficulties that people on the spectrum have with communication often means that they want to avoid responding to the difficult topics by withdrawing. And if a person withdraws from communication, working together through difficulties is not going to happen. Nope. I understand that it's hard to deal with conflict. Nobody likes to deal with conflict. No. And it makes it especially hard when also dealing with communication problems. But life is never, ever going to be without some sort of conflict at some times. We all have to accept that and to find ways to work around differences and difficulties because that's the only way to achieve a healthy functioning relationship. So we do need to find ways to turn a lose-lose situation of not being able to deal with conflict and talk in this reciprocal sort of way and turn it into a win-win by finding ways through it. It's not easy, mm -mm. but if problems remain in a relationship, it can lead to breakdown of the, the relationship. And I don't think anybody wants that. No. So in, in the final chapter of my book, I give five dot points that I believe are important factors for people to consider to try and turn around these difficulties. And I think these are very important. I've seen this type of thing said by many other people too. The first one is being willing to accept and learn about a autism spectrum di diagnosis, even if self-diagnosed. Mm -hmm. That means both people, the person on the autism spectrum and the neurotypical person. Read everything, learn everything, become your own guru. So it's very important to learn everything you can about what it actually means to be on the autism spectrum so that you've got information to be able to make informed decisions about what to do next. Then the, number two is be willing to gain neurodiversity knowledge and learn about each other's differences. That is what it means to be neurotypical if you're autistic and what it means to be autistic if you're neurotypical. And I think this is a big one. Yes. Because we have such a divide of brains, basically, we are different in our thinking, in our way that we go about life. We, we have that difference, and that's just set in stone. Yep. You can't do anything about it. So I think that it's important if we're in a neurodiverse relationship that we need to learn about the other and to learn about ourselves so that we can know what we're dealing with, know what's doable in our own relationship and to be able to work on that. Yes, I 100% agree with that. For me, I think that was the biggest issue be, or one of the biggest issues because I was, and I hear this from the neurotypical partners all the time, I was doing all the research and I was sending uh, videos and um, articles and, you know, memes, whatever I could find, chapters from books, pages from books to my ex-husband when we were separated because we um, didn't find out until nine months before we divorced. And so I didn't know if he was reading it. 
I didn't know because he didn't tell me. And then I remember one day, it might have even been when we were sitting outside the courthouse. I don't know. Everything's kind of a blur now. Um, And he said, I've read everything you sent me. Well, that's great. But there was nothing beyond that, Braun. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if he read it and had any questions. I don't know if he Mm -hmm. read it and wanted to discuss it. I mean, he would he would ask me, you know, once we found out we were a neurodiverse couple, he would ask me, do you think I did that because of we were using the term Asperger's at the time? And I said, yeah. And I would explain, you know, because I had read so much. Um, He would often ask me and I guess he was trying to make the connections. But I think that piece, understanding yourself and understanding your partner is absolutely critical in Mona's opinion to moving forward and having a healthy relationship because it's not about one person being responsible Mm -hmm. for all the breakdowns in communication it's understanding what you each need and how you can get some of those needs met in the relationship so so yeah so great number one and two um, I'm all in what about number three um let's tackle the relationship with a constructive mindset continually look for ways to improve things from your position. Don't wait for the other, make it a priority. And I think that this is important too, because um, I know on the internet, um, there tends to be a lot of um, angst between neurotypical and, and autistic individuals. Mm -hmm. And I think that that can um, be something that goes on in relationships too. This um, so different to each other um, that we create problems for each other. Yes. And get a negative mindset going on. Yes. But I think that it's important to turn that round and start to see that these differences are differences that are there they're not going away like we said right and so we need to get a constructive mindset going and look to try and turn it around we need to look for ways to improve things and to make it a priority for both if your relationship is a priority you need to work on it on it because um, it's like a garden if you water it and tend it and um, keep it um, pruned and all that sort of thing it grows and it flourishes and it looks great right but if you don't do anything to it and the weeds grow up through it and it doesn't get watered the plants die yep the same with a relationship we need to tend it we need to work on it we need to do actual real work on it to make it thrive amen Amen. And, and I think that that's so important. And you mentioned the Gottmans and I, I've said this maybe once or twice before on the podcast, but I talk about this in the support groups, you know, they have been doing research for, I think it's about 50 years now with couples. Now they haven't done it specifically with neurodiverse couples, but every time I would read one of their books or an article that they published from their research, I'm like, oh, that person is neurodiverse or that person is autistic or that's a neurodiverse couple. So I saw it in, you know, their research. So there definitely were neurodiverse couples in their research. They just didn't call it, call them that. 
But mm. in their research, they found that 69% of the problems couples have are perpetual problems. Yes. And, and when I first heard that or read that, I was like, what? But it so makes sense. And it, it could be even higher, I believe, in neurodiverse relationships, because the reason they're perpetual problems, meaning they're not going away, is because they're based on our our character, our values, our personality traits, how mm -hmm. our brains are wired. So understanding what the perpetual problems are around communication and understanding that there are some things that are never going to change. And I'm raising both hands because I thought if I screamed louder or cried longer or <laughs> talked about whatever, you know, for a month at a time, every night when my ex walked through the door, I might get through. No, no, no. So all you neurotypical folks out there, you know, take heed. If you continue to do the same thing and you're not seeing any progress, that may be a perpetual problem. So focus on the 31% of issues in your relationship that are solvable. And how do you know that? Well, you might need a therapist or a coach to help you with that. You might because you're maybe too far in. So I, I love I love this list. So what about number four, Bron? What's number well, that four? Perfectly leads into number four, which is to understand that typical counseling will never suffice. Mm -hmm. Support given from a lack of appropriate knowledge is not support. It does more harm than good. When you need to find help, locate appropriate support. That's support from people knowledgeable in neurodiverse relationships. So it's it's hard to find people that do know this and hopefully as we go on more, more and more people will have more knowledge about neurodiverse relationships. But um, if you find somebody and they don't know about um, neurodiverse relationships, that's not going to help you. It's Don't waste about your money. Yes. Don't waste yeah. your money. Because, um, you know, and I've said this before, we went to three therapists during our separation. None of them knew anything about neurodiversity. And if we had gone to a couples counselor, a therapist who was an expert in neurodiverse relationships, they would have immediately, immediately said something about it because of the way we communicated and the things my ex was saying during therapy. I mean, it was just, yeah, now looking back, it was just some interesting stuff. But the other thing I want to tell folks is if you go to my website, which is neurodiverselove.com and go to the resource page, I have a list of the therapists and coaches who have been on the Neurodiverse Love podcast and provide either therapy or coaching or both. And many of them ha are therapists who do coaching. And if they do coaching, they can work with you anywhere in the world if they're mm. a therapist only they can only work with you in the state or country that they're licensed in so um please please go there and then the other resource is aane.org and they also have a list of the therapists and coaches that have gone through their certification and training process so those are two places to start and um, you can always email me too and uh Number five, then let's see. Let's see where number five will take us. 
Um, most importantly, be motivated to learn about, nurture and support each other's individual needs. Your spouse and your family are the most important people in the world. Your words and your behaviour need to reflect that fact. And that's, I guess, wrapping it all up into one point. It, the whole thing is about being motivated to learn, nurture and support each other, and be able to turn towards each other through doing all this um, learning about each other and going to, to the right type of counselling. Yeah. Um, we need to start to turn our eyes to our spouse and our families rather than away from and see how we can um, work towards making things better for each. I yeah. think that's very important because families are very important. Yes. And, um, I don't think I can state that strong yeah. enough. <laughs> yeah, I know. We both have a, a similar story where, you know, um, family members have decided they do not want to communicate with us anymore. Mm. And, you know, it's, um, that is tough. That is, that is yeah. very, very difficult. And, you know, you can't make somebody communicate if they don't want to communicate that's in a neurodiverse relationship. Or if you have neurodiversity in your family, I am all about resolving conflict and, and mm. conflict has never been something that I avoided. I, but I feel comfortable with it because I grew up in a family where we had conflict and we talked through it because both of my parents were psychologists, <laughs> but that's not the norm. So I know for a lot of neurodiverse couples, I repeatedly hear, you know, um, one partner, oftentimes it's the autistic partner will avoid the conflict or when there's conflict, they may leave the room, leave the house um, and then come back and pretend or as far as they're concerned, it's solved because they went away and it should no longer continue. So again, these are things that we don't have the magic wand to deal with and, and erase in your relationship, but with the, with a therapist or a coach who has skills in working with neurodiverse couples, I do think you can get to the other side and it's not going to be easy. And both partners are going to have to do the work. So I think that's going to be really helpful. That list of ways in which you can, at least do some work to create some win-wins. Now, mm. there's there's an area that you've written a lot on. You've written several articles, I know. And um, we've talked about this very briefly in the past. But you found the issue of neurotypical prompting mm. being something that happens often related to communication and neurodiverse relationships. So can you share a little bit with our listeners about what that is and kind of how it works? Because I realize now I did it often. Yes. Well, it all comes down to that intrinsic or um, extrinsic motivation that we've, we talked about before. And I'll talk a little bit about that first because that's, part of the reason why it happens. So <clears throat> intrinsic motivation it refers to an individual's motivational strength that comes from inside determination, 
rather than from an external prompt or intrinsic incentive. Studies have confirmed that for adults with autism, a lack of intrinsic motivation can be due to an extremely low tolerance and motivation towards what is perceived as mundane or mediocre tasks that have no meaning for them. So if they don't see the value or significance of a task, challenge, interaction, such as problem solving or having affectionate conversations, even if it's significant for others, regularly they won't engage with it. Plus, intrinsic motivation can also be damaged by past anxieties and failures in learning how to solve problems effectively or being unsuccessful with taking control and taking responsibility for one's life. However, not dealing with something yourself means that motivation is left to another person to do and do it for you and to be the extrinsic motivator for the things that they don't want to do. Mm -hmm. That said, success builds success. Failure produces discouragement and regularly more failure, which in turn can de decrease intrinsic motivation further. Although the experience of many failures tend to decrease intrinsic motivation, still, communication is the single most important thing in a relationship. Interactive behaviour matters greatly to a relationship quality, and studies have confirmed that the social interaction that one has with significant others is the single most contributing factor of a person, that's both people, of a person's physical and psychological well-being. However, in my studies, I found that the substantial differences in need for interaction and emotional connection between autistic and neurotypical people, the need for less as opposed to the need for more interaction, was the catalyst to the development of an intellect communication cycle that was based on neurotypical participants providing significant external motivation and support to their autistic partners and family members to compensate for and to manage the relationship while also managing any relation, any, re, any re, resulting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting tongue-tied today. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> uh, any resulting communication misunderstandings. The NT participants in my study attempted to do the motivating by providing step-by-step -step instruction and prompting to manage the communication differences and to try to create intimacy and connection in their relationships. Now, a prompt is a stimulus used to pr produce behaviour, for example, instructions, explanations, and nonverbal gestures that may not spontaneously occur. The prompts given were intended to help their partners and family members to achieve the interaction that was missing in their relationships and at the same time increase unprompted responses from them. However, the desired outcomes of neurotypical participants were often hindered by their autistic partner's lack of motivation and avoidance behaviour because they did not want the interactions to happen. 
I found that an inability to find a solution appropriate for each participant was the reason for the formation and continuation of this communication system that integrated prompting, prompt dependency, or prompt avoidance. When locked in this cycle, neither autistic nor neurotypical participants succeeded in attainment of their needs. So the cycle became an opp oppositional communication system that kept on going due to the persistent communication differences and difficulties and the lack of intrinsic motivation from autistic people to change the predicament they were in. However, the prompt dependency cycle was found to have negative impacts on both groups of participants and lower degrees of prompt dependency contributed to better outcomes within the relationship. So <clears throat> basically that is um, all about <clears throat> the um, lack of motivation to do anything in a relationship leads to all this. Yeah. It's the lack of learning, the lack of understanding, um, all leads to this one thing that it ends up being that because the neurotypical person doesn't have these sorts of problems with communication, and so they're trying to help, right. trying to support. You know, they're seeing the struggles, they're seeing um, that the things are not working, and so they're trying everything they can um, from, as you put it, screaming right. to, to, to talking it through to, you know, sometimes <clears throat> verbally um, <clears throat> you know, doing too much verbal you know, interaction. Right, you know, right, right. Getting it really um, going, trying to prompt, trying to make it work from right. their position. Right. But and if somebody does not take that up, then yeah. it causes this push-pull sort of situation to happen and it becomes a communication cycle that the two people get locked into. And it's not a good cycle. It's horrible. <laughs> it is the story of, I can't even tell you how many conversations in my marriage. And when I first read, I, I think it was your thesis or one of the articles you had published, I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to talk to this woman. <laughs> and I think that may have, may have been when I first reached out to you because I'm like, you are telling this story of, so much of my marriage and I remember I remember literally standing in front of my ex-husband and repeating things over and over again thinking that that would get a better response and all I probably sounded like to my ex was a bitch a nagging bitch an annoying bitch, you know, an emotional, you know, bitch. I mean, he was probably thinking, what the heck is going on in her brain? But mm. I, I felt like no matter what, and it wasn't every conversation, but in those conversations where I just wasn't getting through, I tried to say it in different ways. And then I would use the prompts. Like I remember so many times having to prompt my ex to reach out to his family when they had called 
numerous times. And in the olden mm-hmm. days, we had, you know, um, they would leave a message on the answering machine, which, you know, was in the house with the landline. And he wouldn't call. And he wouldn't pick up the phone. <laughs> and I realize now that it was avoidance because he didn't know what to say or he didn't have the emotional bandwidth to listen or whatever. But instead of having that conversation with his family, he just avoided them. And then I would have to prompt him, well, did you call your mother? It's her birthday today. You know, did you call your sister? It's her birthday today. And had I not done that for 30 years, I don't know that any of them would have gotten a call, to be honest with you. And it has nothing to do with whether or not he loved his family because he loves his family. It just Mm. had to do with it wasn't birthdays were never important to him. You know, I don't I'm not sure that celebrations at all were important to him. And I hear this oftentimes from the autistic partners in the support groups, you know, they don't they are not motivated motivated by you know it's a holiday so i need to get my my partner a present or my kids it, that's just not what motivates them and you talked about that it has to be something internal that motivates them oftentimes mm-hmm. so i have probably so many examples of the prompting piece but what i hear brawn over and over again and i'm sure those folks that are listening that have had this conversation in their relationship will totally understand this is that i hear oftentimes the neurotypical partner saying i feel like i am my partner's mother and i do not want to be my partner's mother i married an adult person who i want to partner with I do not want to be their mother, right? So you heard this too? Oh, yes. It came out very strongly in my research that that is one of the results from this prompt dependency cycle for the neurotypical people is that it it, um, forms a caretaker role for them. And so they feel like they're the mother. Yeah. And they feel like if they if they don't do it, nobody does it. Yeah. So it's a burden on them to continue doing it because these things are necessary. Yeah. And if they don't do it, <clears throat> excuse me, and nobody does it, then um, you know, things fall apart. So they feel burdened by the responsibility of having to do it and having to mother the relationship not just the partner, but the whole whole relationship and take on the burden of the responsibility of all of it to keep it going. Yeah. And I will tell you, and I don't think I've ever said this on the podcast, you know, I was, when I was um, separated from my ex before we knew we were a neurodiverse couple, I really wondered how he would function on his own because we separated and he moved into his own place and because he had never lived on his own before and I just want to tell our audience because I hear this from a lot of neurotypical partners I don't know if he'll survive or I don't know if she'll survive without me they will I guarantee guarantee you the relationship ends they'll figure out how to either you know, uh, move in with a friend or a family member or figure out how to support themselves. 
And I'll tell you, you know, I've been on my own in, in, and my ex has been on his own for over seven years. We separated seven years ago, February. And I think he's still living with a roof over his head. I mean, I haven't talked to him in a while, but I don't think he's homeless. I know he has a job. I know he has a car because he goes to see our daughter. I mean, it's I'm I'm laughing, but I just want people to know if you are not happy in your relationship, because a lot of your needs aren't being met, whether you're the autistic or the neurotypical partner, both of you can survive individually. Is it going to always be easy? It depends on your financial situation. It depends on your support system. But I just like to tell people we all deserve to be happy. We all deserve to have joy and peace in our lives. So that's Mona's soapbox because that's, I couldn't be happier in my life right now. And, you know, it was the hardest decision of my life to, to choose to file for divorce. It really, really was. Mm -hmm. And the communication piece was so critical and it just wasn't getting any better. So, you know, one of the things we've talked about, um, you know, in preparing for this, this episode was when one or both partners even take everything as criticism um, and they can't hear that anything is wrong because they feel shame. And I, I really do wonder if it's around rejection, um, sensitivity, dysphoria, I think RSD. Yeah. Um, But I'd love if we can talk a little bit about that because, you know, there are going to be times when we are going to say to our partner, no matter what type of relationship we're in, you know, I feel like I'm not being appreciated. I feel like I'm not being heard. I feel like I'm doing more of the housework, whatever. And hopefully we're able to use I statements and tell our partners what it is we want rather than just constantly pointing a finger and blaming them. What is it that you found in your research about, you know, how criticism affects partners and how that leads to shame because they feel they can't do anything right? Yes, well, um, people on the spectrum are often very sensitive to receiving criticism. Um, And I guess this is something that Um, a lot of people don't realise that the people on the spectrum are actually really quite sensitive. They're not the, the, um, they might have a a harder exterior that we can't see through, but they are very sensitive inside. Mm -hmm. And often they hear criticism when none is implied because of that sensitivity. Yeah. They can interpret a difference of opinion or a different perspective as a criticism of who they are as a person. And they can hear a criticism of a family member as a criticism of themselves too. So they may respond by refusing to communicate or lashing out in a very hurtful manner. When they hear these criticisms, well, when they receive something that they feel is a criticism. Mm Yet often a neurotypical person gets accused of criticising when all they're doing is asking a question or making a statement that they might not agree with. 
This happens because questions and criticisms come from very different perspectives between the neurotypical people and the autistic people. While neurotypical people ask questions to clarify, to open up discussions and, and um, get a conversation moving along or to find out you know, more so that they can talk more about it, people on the autism spectrum take a very different tack to that because they rarely ask questions for clarification because that would require a theory of mind which is known to be a difficulty with people on the spectrum. Yeah. So instead, their focus is to answer or ignore questions as they attempt to close down the discussion and focus on a black and white solution. And it means that um, often working towards collaboration doesn't actually occur. Mm -hmm. And as a result, our questions are confusing to them and bring the, the accusations that we're criticising them. Yeah. But ironically, those on the spectrum are hypersensitive to receiving criticism, but they're often unaware that they regularly give criticism. So criticism is a really big issue because... Um, Nobody likes to be criticised. No. Nobody likes it. No. Um, but it's how you view things, how you take things. And this is where it comes back to communication again. It's being able to work out what did you mean. Right. And not assume that you know what somebody meant. And that's a really tricky thing to do when you have these communication issues going on. Yeah, I think it's so critical, Braun, though, and I want to talk a little bit more about that because I know throughout my marriage, I took so much personally that wasn't personal. And I did it because, and now I know, because there were many needs that I had that weren't me being met, but I'm not sure that I clearly communicated them or if I clearly communicated them I may have done it through anger and screaming or I may have been emotional and crying and so my ex he, he didn't have the bandwidth to hear it at certain times so you know one of the things that I suggest to couples is that if there's something that you want maybe to see changed or improved in the relationship, send it in an email, send it in a text. And then, you know, during your weekly get together where you discuss an issue or a few issues, you bring it up. But I think one of the mistakes I made over and over again was bringing things up in the moment without giving my ex an opportunity to think it through. Because I've said this before, when he had the information ahead of time, and he had a chance to read it over and over again, he was able to process it differently and oftentimes better. So that's very, very difficult to do when you're dysregulated, meaning you're angry and you're emotional, you're pissed, something didn't go well, you feel like you're not being heard or validated or seen in your relationship. But I remind people over and over again, and I was guilty of this for 32 years, every time I got dysregulated, that was not a healthy time or a good time for me to 
talk and communicate. And it wasn't for my ex either in any relationship. So it's so important for us to have ways in which we can either co-regulate with our partners or regulate and balance our nervous system on our own. Whether it's going to take a bath, going for a walk, going to the gym, listening to music, calling a friend, it doesn't matter. Hopefully it's something healthy. But then if you have an opportunity to share your thoughts and writing, and then you can meet when you're both regulated, it can make a difference. And maybe mm-hmm. that's when the, the, the criticism or when it's being viewed as a criticism, something you're saying when your partner is beginning to get dysregulated can be seen through another lens. I don't know that it can ever work a hundred percent of the time, But I think there's opportunities for understanding different ways of sharing what might be considered criticism. That's just Mm -hmm. my my thought. And and, then seems to be working in my relationships. Um, I have a lot of autistic and neurodiverse people in my neurodiverse neurodivergent people in my life. And I'm just a very different communicator now. Very different. And it, it just seems to have have taken on um, a much more healthy way of being in relationship with the people I care about, because I don't want to be a screamer anymore. I don't want to be a crier. I don't want to be an emotional basket case. None of that was healthy for me or anybody that was around me when I was. So, so any other thoughts on that? Because I want to, I want to talk a little bit about um, when both partners expectations are like too high for each other especially around communication. Any other thoughts on the criticism piece? Well, um, I guess it comes back to, like you said, um, it's the learning each other that can help with this issue because it is about um, different perspectives. And the only way that we can... um, understand that somebody has a different perspective to us is to learn more about what it means to to um, be in a neurodiverse relationship. So I, I can't stress it enough that it's very important to get all the learning we can in order to work through some of these issues. And yeah. like you said, you're you're different now. I know I'm different now because of the learning that I've been able to um, go through. Yeah, after interviewing 400 people, right? <laughs> yes. So, so and, and I think that's thing. very important to, to um, do that because that's what changes you and makes it possible to tackle the, some of these issues. I agree. I couldn't agree more. And so one of the things you said that um, I started using probably years ago was you know, when somebody said something to me and it was a neurodivergent person or even a, a, a neurotypical person, I would, if I was with them, I would look at them and, and I would say, um, the way you said that hurt. It did not feel good. Mm. And did, did you mean to hurt me with that statement? And it's so interesting. And I, I didn't say it emotional or anything like that. It's so interesting how literally like tears might come into their eyes because they had no idea 
that the words they used, the tone they used, whatever was received that way. And Mm -hmm. I remember um, in my early, in my marriage saying things like that to my ex and saying, you know, that really hurt. You know, I don't know why you said that, or I don't know why you said that that way. And he'd go out and he'd buy me a card, uh, an apology, you know, I'm sorry, or the most beautiful cards. And I, I have every card he ever gave me because they were so amazing. Um, but he couldn't find the words to apologize or to rephrase what he meant. But he was mm. able to find a card that said it. So, you know, now we have memes and we have videos and we have everything. So maybe if you don't know the right words to say to get the point across to your partner in a loving, kind way, you can find somebody else who's said it or written it or whatever. And you can share that with your partner. Just a thought, because now I understand why there was that disconnect and it was helpful to get those cards, but I really wanted the communication to be different. And that was the challenge. So I, I kind of want to end with the expectations kind of being too high sometimes for both partners. And I would love if you would share a little bit about, you know, kind of what you found on that. Okay. Well, in any relationship, it's common for people to make assumptions during conflict based on their individual interpretations. And in neurodiverse relationships, due due to the differences in processing information, this is magnified because one or both people are more likely to misunderstand and misinterpret each other. So due to their differences in brain wiring and resulting differences in perspective, it's very common for both people to feel misunderstood. Neurotypical people tend to feel like their autistic partner isn't willing to try harder or doesn't care enough. And autistic people tend to feel like their partner doesn't have enough patience, is difficult to please, and almost likes conflict. That's what I've been told, that they, they feel like we actually really like conflict, and that's not the case at all. We don't. We just don't know how to get through sometimes. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And defensiveness is more common in neurodiverse relationships because the differences in brain wiring means that one may view something as acceptable and the other may have a completely different view, more so than in typical relationships. So it's also common for the autistic person to feel like they have to explain themselves constantly, which leads to hypervigilant, hypervigilance, guilt yeah. and shame. And this constant impasse in communication leads to a dynamic where both partners feel on edge whenever conflict arises. Yeah. So it may be difficult for neurotypical people to understand that their partner's brain processes information differently. They maintain the expectation that their partner should think, react and behave the same way as a neurotypical person. However, this is also true for autistic people. Their black and white thinking appears completely right to them. So that is the only way to see it, according to them. This is the problem is it means that 
<clears throat> neurodiverse relationships tend to grow apart due to the deep resentment of not being able to understand each other. But for a neurodiverse relationship to thrive, it's important to focus on understanding the differences in how you and your partner processes information and how this impacts on your ability to understand each other. It's important to learn how both of you process information and honour those differences and learn to set reali realistic expectations around them. So um, maybe it can be to make it a goal to communicate directly and clearly when it comes to topics that can turn into conflict. Implement soft startups. You've talked about that before and mm -hmm. Gottman talked about that. Um, to give your partner the benefit of the doubt. Some people do better with time-limited phone conversations, video calls, writing letters instead of face-to-face -face conversations, as you've talked about too. Mm -hmm. Remember that as long as a relationship is not abusive, there is no right way or wrong way, simply two different ways of seeing things. It might mean the relationship needs to become more regimented than what is considered typical, but it's about finding what works best <clears throat> and maybe changing some preconceived ideas on what a relationship should be like. Amen. Amen. I, I so I, I love that because I say that all the time to folks in my support groups. I say your neurodiverse relationship may not look anything like any other couple you know. Yes. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Mm. You know, if you know you have to prompt your partner at social events and that means telling them to go say goodbye at the end of the night or telling them to say hello or when they're in a group and there's a conversation going on and somebody asks a question and your partner was, you know, not listening because it wasn't an important topic, you know, to be able to, you know, touch their shoulder or whatever, you know, code you've worked out, um, which means that, you know, you then can tell them what it is that they have been asked. So there are lots of things that may look really odd and different to your family and community and even your children. But if you both agree that this is going to be how you're going to help support each other, and it goes both ways as you move forward in your relationship, that's all that matters. And I do want to say, you know, I understand it now, um, but of course, I have so much more knowledge about neurodiversity. But I remember my ex calling me a bully and a narcissist during our separation. And oh my gosh, I cried. I was so upset. Mm -hmm. I probably screamed at him. I got really emotional. I'm like, you know, I'm a social worker. All I ever wanted to do was help people, including mm -hmm. my ex-husband. But now I understand where he was coming from, um, or at least I think I do. We never had a discussion about this, but now looking at it through the neurodiverse lens, you know, I realize that a lot of couples may be in this conundrum in mm -hmm. that one partner, I'm just going to say the neurotypical and non-autistic partner might be portraying or, or taking action that looks like they're a bully, meaning pushing their partner 
that prompting to do certain things that need to happen in a family or in a relationship, right? Mm. So, so that could be viewed by the autistic partner as bullying when actually what it is, is pushing your partner to do the things that need to be done for you to have a successful relationship. And that's the prompting, right? Yes. As far as the narcissist piece, I knew what I wanted, Bron. I knew what I wanted in our marriage. I knew what I wanted professionally. I knew what I wanted with my friendships. I knew what I wanted as a mother. And I was very, very comfortable sharing that and then going forward to make it a reality. Now, the fact that my ex heard that and then I did it, I did it because he never pushed back or he pushed back on some major things, but most things he just went along. And so I want to speak to the autistic partners. If you are going along and don't agree with something your partner is doing, that's not okay. I'm just, Mm -hmm. it's just my feeling. This is Mona talking. This isn't research, whatever. And the reason I say that is because you deserve to be your authentic self. We all do. But if you don't tell your partner what your opinion or what your need is, they can't read your mind. Mm -hmm. And so I hear this over and over again, you know, um, they, the avoidance of conflict. So not saying anything, but that doesn't make for a healthy relationship. So Mm. that doesn't make the neurotypical partner a narcissist either. That's not not the definition of a narcissist. Somebody who knows what they want and goes after it is not a narcissist. It Mm. might be an assertive person or who's goal oriented, but it's not a narcissist. So I think, again, these things are, you know, we're just barely touching the surface. But Mm. I think these are really important issues around communication differences, please get Braun's book. It's, it's excellent. And so much more to come, you know, in her other books, which are going to be focused on different things from her research. But you're not alone, whether you're the autistic partner or the non-autistic neurotypical partner, you're not alone in what you're feeling. You're not alone in what you're experiencing. And there is a way to get beyond the conflict or the anger or the resentment or a prompt dependency cycle that isn't healthy where you feel like a caretaker or a parent. But if you've been with your partner as long as I was, which was, you know, 29 years before we knew we were a neurodiverse couple, it's going to probably take a really, really good therapist or coach to get you to a place where the two of you can communicate effectively and respectfully and kindly and with love and compassion. Yes. What do you think? Yeah, you agree. Yes. Yeah. So with that said, we've talked about so much and all of it is really important. And I hope that it's helpful to those that are listening no matter what your neurotype, is there anything that you want to, anything else you want to add um, before we end our episode tonight? Well, I think that um, we've covered quite a lot. Yes, we have. In there. But um, one thing I do want to say is that um, the next book that I'm writing is about um, taking what has 
been um, put into the research, what I've what I've discovered in the research, and putting it in a way that will help others on the outside understand. So it's for therapists and counsellors and friends and family to understand what we go through in a neurodiverse relationship. So the first book is more for us in the relationship, but the next one coming along is to help others understand us. So some of the things that we've talked about today is not, they're, they're not things that other people understand from the outside of our relationships very well. Right. But I'm hoping to turn that around by putting that into the next book. Wonderful. Wonderful. And, and the one thing that I want to say to end this conversation is respect goes both ways in yes. a any kind of relationship. And at the end of my marriage, I did lose respect for my ex-husband. Um, he, I, I, I felt I couldn't trust him and I no longer respected him. And I hear that from a lot of folks, both the autistic and the neurotypical partners. And when you get to that point, I think it is sometimes um, difficult to manage to get to the other side. So I hope all the things that, that Braun has shared and I've talked about tonight or today will be helpful because respect is, in my opinion, like one of the most critical things that you need to have for your partner, because then that, you know, that makes you want to do the work that makes you want to learn that makes you want to build a foundation based on trust and compassion and kindness. So um, I hope that a lot of the information we shared tonight will be helpful and uh, if you want information from Braun, you can reach her at her website, which is braunwilson.com. And you can go to the neurodiverselove.com website to get information on counselors and therapists. And also, I highly recommend the Neurodiverse Love Conversation cards. The digital um, cards are available for $11 on my website. So thank you, Braun. Braun will be joining me for one more episode as a guest co-host and if you have any questions that you'd like us to address or any topics you'd like to us uh, for us to address please feel free to send uh, me an email at neurodiverselove for you at gmail.com thank you braun it's always a pleasure you're very welcome thank you minor